What's up everybody, this is Lisa Fields, the founder and president of the Jew3 Project, and these are five highlights from 2023. Number five, we release a critical and important curriculum for parents to talk to their teens about gender and sexuality in partnership with Access. This curriculum has reached thousands of parents across the country and helped them have better conversations with their teens about gender and sexuality. Number four, we released a mini doc telling my story and the G3 Project story earlier this year and it's reached thousands of people across the globe. Number three, Courageous Conversations 2023 was an amazing success, our best year yet. Um, this year, we focus on how to reconstruct after deconstructing your faith. And we have so many testimonies of countless people that have been blessed by Courageous Conversations in person and virtually and continue to be blessed through our on-demand option. Number two, as you know, we released our Juneteenth documentary last year, but this year it got picked up by PBS and was available in millions of homes across the country on Juneteenth of this year. That is so amazing, God is so good. And number one, I am so excited that our Unspoken documentary was picked up by Tubi this year, so it's available free to anyone who wants to watch it and reaches our target audience of skeptics who are struggling with this idea that Christianity is a white man's religion. And that's not all. This month, it was picked up by Fox Soul and aired on national television for the first time, available in millions of homes across the world. We could not do what we do at the Jew 3 Project without you. We have so much lined up next year. I have a book coming out next year that I'm excited to tell y'all about, When Faith Disappoints. Uh, the gap between what we believe and what we experience. And there's so much more that we have lined up for 2024. The amazing thing about 2024 is our 10-year anniversary. Jude 3 turns 10, 2024. And so we want to encourage you to stay tuned to all of our socials, subscribe to our newsletter for the exciting things we have coming up in 2024. Thank you for helping us reach these milestones this year. And if you want to continue to help the mission and vision of the Jude 3 Project and help us finish this year strong, or if you see this in the new year, um, to help us continue the work we do for the Jude 3 Project, you can give online at jude3project.org backslash donate. You have the option to give online or there's an address to mail your check in person. Every gift you give helps equip. We could not do what we do without you. So thank you. We appreciate you and more to come. Grace and peace and God bless. Hello, welcome to the Jew3 Project Podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Fields. I'm the founder of the Jew3 Project. Well, thank you for watching another episode of the Jew3 Project Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Lisa Fields, the founder of the Jew3 Project. And as you can see, I'm not in studio today. I'm in my home office. Um, I didn't... Uh, wasn't uh, able to get there today. So, well, we are joined uh, by somebody who's no stranger to the G3 Project. He's probably been on everything we put out almost. (laughs) Dr. Esau McCauley. He's our uh, New Testament theologian in residence for G3 unofficially. (laughs) I saw this other podcast. I think it was um, Jamie Ivey. Where they had mm-hmm. like a wall. If you went on there six times, you got to be on like a bulletin board or something. I need to be on like the. the, the I got to get you um, a bulletin board. I got to get you board. something. Yeah, a, a yeah. Regular, a regular contributor or something. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but for those who haven't seen you on here, maybe new to G3 Project, just tell our audience just a little bit about who you are. 
Yeah, um, I'm Esau Macaulay. I'm an associate professor of New Testament at Wheaton College. I'm also a contributing opinion writer for the New York Times. I write for them about once per month. Um, I'm the author of, I think, five books. Um, what is it? Sharing in the Sun's Inheritance, Reading While Black, How Far to the Promised Land, a book on Lent, and Josie Johnson's Hair and the Holy Spirit. So there's five books that you can currently purchase that I have written. Working on a couple of more. Two of them should drop in 2024, 2025. Actually, three of them. Three books yes. that come out in the next 18 months. You know, you're, I always say Esau is famous now. His book was up there. Uh, right next to some uh, very famous people on that video, a uh, photo you posted. I can't remember. Was it like Prince Philip or something like that? Well, no, they Prince did. Prince Harry. Uh, um, Amazon. I'm going way back. Their, Amazon put out their top 10 nonfiction books of 2023. And I was mm-hmm. honored and blessed that it was, it made the top 10 category in both fiction and, sorry, in nonfiction and in history. So in two different categories, they made it one of the best books of the year. And so that's the most recent book, How Far to the Promised Land. And I think Publishers Weekly also um, named it one of the top five religion books of 2023. So I've just been blessed by people reading and supporting it. Half of the people who buy it are probably Jew three people. So, uh, <laughs> I'm grateful, so I'm grateful for y'all because, you know, as a black writer, you really, um, I'm grateful that people support the stuff that I do. And it's, it's an honor to be able to serve people by the things that I write. Awesome. And we're going to talk about this book, How Far to the Promised Land. But before we get into that, we want to send a message to our haters that are in a group chat we have about LeBron James being the GOAT. So we just want to say that <laughs> and preface it for some people we know yes. um, that only me and Esau agree in yeah. that. And so I just want to say that publicly. Yeah. Um, and what, what I want to say is that they can't bully us. We free in Christ yes. to disagree with them. They act like it's in the Bible. They act like you go Matthew, yes. Mark, Luke, John. The fifth gospel is Michael Jordan is the goat. If you are, I'm going to leave this alone. If you are the top five, you're the number one, the number one score of all time. So nobody who's ever played the game has scored more points than this man. He's going to finish his career in the top five and assist in the top 20 in rebounds. So scores rebounds and assists, the things that make up basketball. He is literally the best in one, the top five in the other, and the top 20 in the third. So I just don't understand how you can yeah. be the best at scoring the basketball and not be the best player, especially when you add in the championships, all of the other stuff that he does. So I'm not even going to get into it, but that's a whole other yeah. podcast. I might start a whole sports podcast, but y'all not going to bully me. And if you tag me, I'm just going to pray for you. Yeah, so we're praying for people like Justin Gibney, Watson Jones, and uh, Charlie Dates that they come to light. Yeah. Man, it's a dark, I'm not in dark place now, to be. So I'm talking real reckless. Yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's well let's get into the book now that we've corrected that false narrative. Uh, let's Thanks. get into the book. Uh, how far to the promised land? Um, Esau, tell our audience why you wrote this book. Your your yeah. first book that people know you by is yeah. Reading While Black. And so yeah. this is a very different follow-up book to that. Yeah. So I think I think it, in some ways those two books are kind of companion pieces. Mm-hmm. And Reading While Black, I when I wrote the book, I was um looking at young black Christians in particular. Um and I saw the ways in which it's like 2016 to like 2019 when I was working on the book. I saw the ways in which what was going on in society, especially the way the Christians were acting, 
were causing people to believe that you couldn't be a Christian who believed the Bible was true and cared about, you know, the disinherited and the oppressed peoples of God, peoples of the world. And so I wrote Reading My Black to talk about how in the black church, we've always um, combined intellectual, I mean, like orthodoxy, the things that we believe with the practice towards caring for the poor and the needy. And we read the Bible in that way. But it's not, but I think that sometimes we can treat Christian faith as like a series of intellectual arguments. Mm. And reading my black is a bunch of intellectual arguments about about these things. But that's not how I became a Christian, right? I didn't become mm-hmm. a Christian because I sat up somewhere and I thought of these ideas and I started to follow God. Christianity is like something that we make sense of over the course of our life, mm-hmm. right? And sometimes when we do the things that we do, me and you, we we get on the internet and we talk about God, and people can get this misconception of who we are, that, oh, you're one of those people who are Christians because it's easy for you, and you don't understand what it's like to kind of go through difficult times. And so How Far to the Promised Land is really me telling the story of, of not just my life with God, but my family's life with God over the course of generations, because sometimes we need an argument, and sometimes we need to be able to just see what it looks like, to see someone struggle to make sense uh, of what it means to follow Jesus. And so I wrote How Far to the Promised Land to really tell the story of what it looks like to wrestle to wrestle with God. Because I think, I think that we think, of, we talked about this on the phone. This is the problem why we get on podcasts because we had half of our conversation before we logged on. We talked about yesterday how, yeah, I can give you like 10 proofs for the resurrection. And I can say, here's why I believe. But I can also say, here's how my belief in the resurrection helped me through this season of my life. And so if, how, if reading my black was the first kind of apologetic, then how far to the promised land is the other kind? Yeah, no, that's really good. I, storytelling, I feel like um, my mentor used to say, um, illustrations are the windows that let the light in. And yeah. storytelling allows you to come through the back door while kind of propositional truths. You're yeah. walking through the front door, like, you know. Yeah, one of the interesting things about the Bible, even something as simple as the Torah, we think of like oh, the Torah or the law. And when someone says, well, what is the law? They will say, well, the law is a bunch of rules that we have to follow. But even the Torah, the thing that is called, the the section of the Bible that is called the law is mostly story. Mm -hmm. Right? So Genesis, mostly narrative. Exodus, mostly narrative. You have Leviticus, yeah. Numbers, a lot of stuff. Yeah, narrative. And so even significant portions of the Torah is story. And significant portions of the Bible is story. And one of the things about a story is in the story, it's like it's not a direct path, right? Beginning, middle, nil. It's like it's a lot of wondering. And mm-hmm. so in the story, you learn both through the things that you do well and the things that you do poorly. And so my story isn't a hero's journey. It's not like here's how I overcame all of this stuff and made it to Jesus. It's like a lot of times I was a mess. My family was a mess. And one of the questions that we often have to ask ourselves, and this is kind of like, I don't know, I don't want to put everybody's tra- my trauma on everybody else. Sometimes you got to ask the question, where was God at in all of that mess? Mm. And so how far to the promised land is me trying to wrestle with um, where is where is God in the midst of kind of, I call them the three overlapping traumas that are at the center of the book. Family trauma, 
That's one thing that's, that's a significant part of the book. The second one is anti-Black racism. Mm-hmm. And the third one is real poverty. So how do you find... So the way... May I, I'll take a step back and I won't ramble too much on it. Certain books talk about, you know, like coming to God as an intellectual exercise. But this book deals with coming to God in the context of a family that is complicated, an America that is complicated, and what it's like to really live without a lot of resources. And so that's what I was trying to get at. And, and in some ways, um, I've always felt like the academy or society, whatever you want to call it, the rules that they have for black intellectuals or black Christians mm-hmm. weren't really designed for our flourishing. And what I mean by that is they said, oh, Esau, you should just go and write a bunch of nerdy books and everything you need to write needs to be super academic, super um, super scholarly, so that people will take you seriously as an academic. But I always felt like, yeah, I could do scholarly work. But I always want to do something that could touch the actual lives of people. And I always have as this bar with my mama read it. And if my mama would think it was boring, I ain't writing it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, that's that's good. Uh, one thing I want to dive into, um, because your story, I think, is so helpful. Uh, when we think about um, trauma and its impact on our life and how we see God, yeah. Um, I, years ago, I had a professor on there on here that talked about every major atheist yeah. had a very interesting dynamic with his with um, his father. Yeah. And because of the failures of their father, they couldn't see God clearly. So yeah. he wrote it like Faith of the Fatherless or something like that. I yeah. can't remember the name, but he's a psychologist and yeah. he studied uh fatherless, how how the impact of major atheists like Freud, their dynamic with their father impacted their view of God. How did your um, your relationship with your father impact your view of God? Man, listen, don't have me getting all emotional on your podcast. The, um, <laughs> the, the title that I had before Help Out to the Promised Land was actually the title of the last chapter in the book, which is called Fathers and Sons Revisited. Because there's one way of looking at the entire book as a reflection on trying to find God in the chaos caused by my father's departure from my life. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I just want to talk about, like dads for a minute, that's okay. Yeah. Um, it, like when I was a kid, I tell this story in the book. When I was a kid, I remember going to, to play to football practice. And and seeing my dad over on the sidelines. And he was there were like all the other parents. And, and anytime your dad or your mom was watching you, that really makes you want to just give everything you got. And after that, I um he takes me to the backyard and we and we practice the drills. And that's pretty much the only positive memory that that I had of him. And he then suffers from drug addiction. He suffered from drug addiction, he's passed now. And one of the things about drug addiction is that it's like, you don't know which person you're going to meet, right? And so one day you can be um, this generous, loving, kind person. And the next person you can be with someone who's physically abusive. And so what you actually have in your life then is this longing for something. Like I want a dad who's going to love me and care for me. But the reality of what you experience 
is really damaging. But you have nobody else to turn to um, except for that person who is sometimes very abusive. And so it creates this strange dynamic where the it, it seems like the person who you who you re- want to rely upon can make your life so much easier if only they were better. And so for me, when I find my when I found myself um, suffering. A lot of people um, in that same situation, that's led to them not being able to trust God. But for me, when my father left, it was like God was the only person who could help. And I talk about this a lot, and and I don't know if it feels anti-intellectual or simplistic, but when I was actually this young kid, right, and and there's, there's someone in my house who, who was addicted to drugs and who could turn violent. Well, when I prayed, God was the only person who was there. All of the people who would later I would encounter when I got to college, and when I began to read these books about God's doesn't exist and all of these things, and this is all wish fulfillment, and then I'm internalizing my own colonialization and all this other stuff. They didn't show up until after I had gone through the worst part of the trauma. But when I was in the midst of the trauma, who was actually there to help me. And for me, it was God. And, and, and was I frustrated that God wasn't solving the problems? Yes. But did I doubt his goodness because of that? No. And why that's the case, I'm not, I, can't, I can't give you a reason other than when I prayed, I felt like there was someone there who listened. And when I went to church and I heard the music and I heard the preaching, and there were people around in the community who cared for me and helped for me, helped me. That's what allowed me to survive. And I can't pretend that those things didn't happen or that those experiences weren't real. And so for me, yeah, my father created the crisis. But in some sense, God was the solution to the crisis. Mm-hmm. And I know that for other people, the fact that God doesn't solve the problem um is a source of emotional distress for them. And I don't want to like disrespect their story. I want to say there is no account of human existence for Christians that doesn't involve the fact that the world is broken and we suffer because of it. But the central claim of Christianity is that in the midst of that suffering, God is with us. And that's what I experienced. I experienced the Emmanuel, even though my father was often absent. No, that's helpful because what you're articulating is the opposite of what the author was articulating for people that they started to doubt God's existence because of the absence of their father. So they thought saw God through the lens of their absent father. Yeah. And what I want to say is um, I talk about this in the book and it's just like it's I think that. So. There's this debate. There's this debate that happened. I'm in I'm in England now. I'm I'm in um, but I was over in Scotland, and mm-hmm. in Scotland there was this atheist and there was this Christian, and they were arguing about the existence of God. And one of them, I don't remember who, brings up the sufferings of people in Africa. And the atheist is like, "Man, you know, God can't exist. Look at these Africans who are suffering." And the Christian like, "Oh yeah, God does exist." Blah 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 blah. But they're both white dudes. And I was like the only black dude that you can imagine running around in Scotland. And I remember thinking very clearly, well, do the black people get a vote? In other words, do those who have suffered actually have the power to interpret their own experiences? 
And what often happens is that other people interpret what my suffering ought to mean. And when I, the meaning of my suffering is that God was there with me in the midst of it. I don't know how I created that button. I, I shouldn't do stuff. This new technology is, is messing around. But anyways, what I want to say is that like, I can, I have the right to say that I found God in the midst of my suffering. And it was not, and, and this is one of the things that I get at in the book. I was confronted by the stories of people who had suffered in my family before. And in those stories and the testimonies they gave me, and you ask them, how did you get through it? They said to me, God was a help in a, in a, in a, in a, in a time of need. So they said that God was helping in the time of need, and they're still here despite their suffering. And I'm now going through the suffering, and I experienced some feeling of the presence of God. And I don't think I'm a fool for concluding that God is with me. And so I think that what I was trying to do was narrate that. Now, in the book, it doesn't come across that way. In other words, in the book, there isn't like this confident assurance at every moment in the story because it's it's unfolding as a narrative. Mm-hmm. And I think it is and maybe this is what I keep talking about. People hear us talk at the conclusion of these stories, not the middle of them. And so you can get this this wrong understanding that as I'm going through this moment, there is no doubt like my father's gone. It's, no, no, no. That doubt is there. And that's why it's recorded in the text. It's recorded in how parts of the promised land. So I don't seem arrogant or dismissive. So I don't. So it doesn't seem like if I say to you, I know you've been through some stuff, but I want to testify to you that God is good. It doesn't feel like a cheap. I mean, I, I won't say that to anybody. Anyway. I don't talk to people that way. But if my, the testimony of my life is an argument that God remains good despite the difficult things that we experience. And for some people, that testimony can feel a little bit offensive or even arrogant. And I wanted to say, even if we disagree spiritually, even if you come to a different place than I have, it's not because one of us has suffered and the other hasn't. Is that we haven't we 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 come to different conclusions because of our suffering, and sometimes people who are looking to believe who have suffered want to see or read an account of someone who suffered and remained faith remained a Christian by the providence of God, and so that's what I was trying to get at, and that's what I think is important for people to realize that our traumas can shape us, but they don't have to define us. Mm-hmm. I love that, and I I, I want to lean into how. It, how important it is to heal from family trauma, mm-hmm. because um, one of the things that I've I've seen a number of times, I've seen this recently. I have a number of friends that came to faith in in college, passionate yeah. about Jesus, sharing their faith with everybody, passionate about sound doctrine. Back then, when you know one one six was in, everybody was oh, yeah. getting into Reformed theology, Reed and Piper, John MacArthur, all the things. And then I noticed. Most of those people are not in the faith anymore. Yeah. And when I talk to them, um, because you think, okay, their doctrine was quote unquote sound, which that could be a whole nother conversation about what is sound doctor. Um, (laughs) But when I talk to them, a lot of it has to do around traumas. So I know a guy, he was like, you know, he had this addiction and he was like, I, I listened to a Piper sermon and he was like, the way to overcome is to know more about God. 
and uh, it was something, it was yeah. like the know the holiness of God or something that yeah. if you know more about God, you will overcome this temptation. Yeah. And he kept falling into this temptation over and over again. But what happened when he went to see his therapist is that he was molested as a boy and he never dealt with it. So yeah. he was trying to learn his way out of yeah. sin instead of processing through yeah. the the traumas that he went through as a child. And so I think when I'm hearing people and falling away, they thought they could learn their way f- through trauma instead yeah. of tackling the trauma. For yeah. you who are a New Testament scholar, you know sound teaching, you know the Greek, oh. the Hebrew, <laughs> all the things. Yeah. It wasn't just enough to learn through it. You had to actually yeah. deal with it. Can you speak to those who are trying to learn yeah. through it instead of deal with it? Yeah. Now, I think I think it's really important that you know, we you set up like one one failure, which to have all head knowledge and no experiential knowledge. And there's mm-hmm. also the danger of having all experience and no guardrails spiritually. Mm-hmm. We're going to yeah. assume that we're talking about this other thing. And I think that um, the truth is what Christianity can do for you is to give you the power or the strength to have the things that would destroy us not destroy us. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean you don't have to deal with them. In other words, you can face your trauma because you know that God is greater than your trauma, but you still Mm -hmm. have to face it. Mm -hmm. And so what I'm saying is, if you just get this big doctrine of God, which you should have, you should understand the Trinity as much as you can, do a nature of Christ, you know, all that, you need to get all of that. But then what that does, that gives you an anchor to finally face the things that 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 were in front of you, such mm-hmm. that you know when you face them, they're not going to overcome you. In other words, there's this idea, and this is actually true. Like I can't face this because it might destroy me. And if you don't have hope, then that's actually true, right? The, and, and even when you become a Christian, it doesn't mean that the moment you become a Christian, you can immediately face every trauma. The life with God is a, a unfolding reality over time. Where as you mature, you get more and more courage. There's mm-hmm. a reason. Here's the thing. There's a reason that Reading While Black was written before How Far to the Promised Land. Mm-hmm. Right? So I had the doctorate, right? I had the doctorate and I knew it. And I but I wasn't ready to talk about the things that had happened in my childhood. Because mm-hmm. I talk, here's the thing. I think there's like two testimonies. Well, there's a bunch of testimonies. When I talk about different testimonies to our trauma. One testimony is I'm still here. <laughs> like you don't even talk about it to anybody. I'm just, God, God saved me. I'm still here despite whatever happened to me. Right. Mm-hmm. And there's a sense in which those stories, and this is just in different traumas play different places in your life. Those stories in a sense still have a hold of you. Mm-hmm. In other words, all that you can really say about it is that I survived it. You can't talk about it without like being overcome. You really haven't dealt with it. Mm-hmm. But then you get, there, there is this place in your life where you get a hold of your story. In other words, instead of them having emotional and spiritual control over you, you learn to face that trauma, deal with the pain of it. It doesn't mean that it doesn't hurt, but it, it no longer paralyzes you. Mm-hmm. And you've kind of like you've gained control. And I think of my past as like this wilderness. 
And 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 it's there's wild narratives running around. And piece by piece, the spirit of God is slowly reclaiming parts of the narrative. Mm-hmm. Reading why how far to the promised land ain't my whole life. It is what I it's what I it's the stories that I've now taken control of. There's still stuff that God has worked with in my life. Now, mm-hmm. you do get to this third place, which I think is kind of it's not the most mature or beautiful. It's not, that's not what I'm saying. It's, it's a grace. You can get to a place in your life where you have such a control over your story that it can then become your testimony. Mm-hmm. You can then talk about it. If you don't, if you can't talk about it, it's not a spiritual failure. It's not some things that you just may never talk about. Maybe between you and the Lord until you return. But you may get to a place where not only have you taken control of the story, it doesn't just paralyze you anymore. Mm-hmm. You can then say, I will use this story for the glory of God. I talk mm-hmm. about I talk about. Um, so, Joseph, right. You can imagine Joseph throughout most of Joseph's, Joseph's narrative. He doesn't even talk about what happened to his fa- with, with him and his family. When, mm-hmm. when Joseph is in prison and they said, Joseph, why are you in prison? I didn't listen to what he says. He says, I was sent. I, I was sent. I was sold here to Egypt. And now I'm in this prison. Now I didn't do anything wrong. He didn't tell the cupbearing people that it was his parents. I mean, that it was his brothers who sold him. He didn't tell them that part because he wasn't ready for that part of the narrative. He's still mm-hmm. dealing with the trauma. But by the time you get to the end of the narrative, he's able to say, and this, this is the important part. What you meant for evil, that was foul. Like y'all did it. Like it was foul. He doesn't minimize the trauma. He said, what you meant for evil God used for good to bring about the salvation of many people. And so Joseph's narrative becomes beyond that which he simply survives to an actual testimony. And so I do think that it's important for us to, to like to pray. And one of the one of the people who the people who I respect the most, the most, because like I, I was a victim of domestic abuse. I was physically abused, right? But there are people who um were like sexually abused who are now advocates for abuse reform in the church and in the world. And they tell the most difficult part to their, of their life as a means of helping others. Mm-hmm. Every abuse survivor doesn't have to do that. Mm-hmm. That's not your call if God didn't call you to it. But the fact that they were able to survive that story mm-hmm. and to use it to help save other people is is I think worthy of our respect and admiration. And sometimes people who are survivors of abuse are helped by the fact that they can see other survivors of abuse. It doesn't normalize it, doesn't make it right. It doesn't mean that God God didn't allow it to happen so they can then have a testimony. I'm not saying any of that. I'm saying that that person's present survival is an encouragement to other survivors. And so what I want to suggest then is that for for those for the parts of our story that we can handle, then it's good. Now, and, and this is, I'm, I'm talking about this trauma stuff. And, and I'm not, when I say this, this is not me like, hopefully this doesn't sound judgmental. This is just like a statement of some things that I see and maybe for my own life. I may have talked about for me than other people. Sometimes in my own life, especially when I used to talk about my father when I was young, when I used to preach about him when I was young, I talk about me. I hadn't actually processed that trauma right. And so it wasn't actually me having control of the story. I was venting in front of the public. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't 
but it was like it was a part of my testimony. But it was like I'm also trying to get back at that dude who wronged me. And I'm like I'm still here. Forget you. And so I do think that we have to be careful. Um, no, no, no. Careful is the wrong word because I can't tell people how to do it. Sometimes I see people who are still processing their stories, mm-hmm. and I and I wonder. Maybe that's just a stage they have to go through. But I'm not sure that we are ready to help people um, unless we are in a healthy place ourselves. Yes. And I'll say for me, before y'all knew me, this is like, maybe it was on the internet, but like before I had a public profile, I don't know if everything that I said was actually helpful. And that even people who connected to what I was doing was connected to my trauma. We shared a trauma, but neither one of us knew how to point towards healing. There's a bunch mm-hmm. of dudes who, who all of us who had jacked up dads growing up, and we all had dysfunctional relationships with women because of it, but none of us was helping each other. We were just, but all reflecting the same trauma. Trauma body. And had community around that trauma, and then repeating the wrong wisdom that we got from that trauma as if it just all made sense. We are just a, a buck and a mess together. And so I do want to say maybe um, I could have, in retrospect, been wiser and how I engage that stuff. I don't want to I'm not talking about anybody else, because one of the other things is like really, really um, what I'm thinking about as I'm saying all of this is I'm not going to tell some traumatized person that they're processing their trauma in the wrong way. Because that the whole point is that you traumatize. And when you traumatize, you just do stuff, right? I mean, in other mm-hmm. words, like, I can't say you tripping because I don't disagree with how you would do it. If I myself was tripping when I was going through my stuff, and what trauma does is it messes, it messes with our brain. It's so mm-hmm. one of the hardest things for me to maybe do, I'll put it this way, is that sometimes I feel like as a Christian who's in public, we catch strays because we become outlets for people processing trauma related to disappointments with the church that may not have anything to do with us. Mm-hmm. And I used to get offended by it, but now I just understand and it's not just hurt people, hurt people. It's that hurting people are no matter what they say and what they do, a worthy of our compassion and our love and our care and how we describe them and interact with them. Mm-hmm. No, that's helpful. One of the things I, I love that you said about, you know, we can't tell people how to process, right? Uh, however, there is this line in which we have to know, have I even internalized it and processed it myself? So yeah. I look back on my Facebook memories um, every day to see what I was thinking yeah. five, 10 years ago. Yeah. And there are some statements I made about God, you know, that are true. Yeah. Love your enemies, yeah. but you don't really know what that means till you had to love your enemy. You know yes. what I'm saying? You're That's making a true statement, but you haven't had to go through what it's like to actually have to love someone that hurts you deeply. Yes. You know, you what it means to have to forgive. Yes, it's true in your head. That's when we, we were reading this um in homiletics. I remember Kevin King, my professor, uh, love Dr. King. Shout out to him. He said he had us read this book. It was a little exercise for young theologians. Yeah. Um, and in the book, the author says, 
I don't suffer listening. He said, I don't listen to messages from first year seminary students. And he was basically saying because they haven't processed the information that they're getting. So it's like, yes, I'm getting all this knowledge about God, all these ideas, intellectual ideas, but it's just in the head. They don't they haven't even processed fully the implications of it, but because it's new to them and they're excited about it, they just want to share it with the world. And I see that happening similarly with what you're saying on social media. People, influencers get a lot of head knowledge and then they they shoot it to the world ex experts, but they haven't let it move from their head to their heart. So here's the thing, and this is gonna be this might be twenty percent too real. Because this here's <laughs> a secret part of how parts of the promised land that people may not have paid attention to. So the um, if you haven't read it, hope you still read it. But the opening passage is the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Everybody loves that passage, right? One mm-hmm. guy comes in and goes, you know, I'm glad I'm so right. I'm not like this other dude in the in the in the Tax collector says, Lord, have mercy upon me, a sinner. Mm-hmm. And we love to preach that. We love to preach that in the church. It doesn't matter what you did. You can come to Jesus, blah, 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 blah. You know, all of that stuff is good. And I used to mm-hmm. preach that too. And then I thought about this because it, it was the passage that I preached when my father died. It's the, it's the passage that I felt like God had led me to use in, in the sermon. And this is the reason why. It's easy to root for the conversion of the tax collector in abstract unless you actually knew him. All right. What if the tax collector came to your house, right? Took all your stuff to make himself rich. And now you homeless. Mm-hmm. And you hear the tax collector got saved. You feel a certain kind of way, don't you? Now, here's the question. It's the real question. We talk about we want everybody to repent. But do we actually? Because there's a part of us that like it when people who treated us bad stay bad. That justifies our hatred of them. Mm-hmm. But if they change, if they actually repent, then you got to do some business in your own heart. Mm-hmm. Then you got to say, well, do I got to, like, how do I now process the change dynamic in our relationship? So for most of my father's life, he was an addict and a criminal. And he caused us real pain. My entire childhood was defined by that absence. So when he asked his spiritual conversion, it don't mean that all of that stuff that he did came. I I found myself not sad that he was converted. That's silly. But emotionally confused. Right. And so here's the question I had to ask myself. You talk about doctrine. Do I believe in the doctrine of grace or do I not? Mm-hmm. Right? Do I actually believe that you can be fouled your entire life and then find God at the end and everything is going to be okay? And I found myself struggling with fully rejoicing in the transformation of someone who had done me wrong because it required me to do the internal work of forgiveness. Doesn't mean that you normalize the things, but the forgiveness stuff takes time. And so we have all of these doctrines mm-hmm. and you don't. And, and, I, and, I, and my, one, one, one of the questions they ask me, you travel around the country, they say to me, Esau, what's this one thing you would tell people about the next 10 years of the church? What would you tell young people to get ready for? I said, I have no idea about what's going to happen 10 years from now. I'm not a prophet, but I would tell you all this. You don't know what you believe yet. You don't know mm-hmm. because you don't know until life has really knocked you over. Yes. And you are face to face with it. Then you find out whether or not you believe in grace 
or when you or, or when you're rich, there's really no reason for hope. Then yes. you find out whether or not you believe in the resurrection. In other words, life, if you I remember my mommy, you know, old folks, they say you ain't lived long enough yet. That didn't make any sense to me until I lived a little bit longer. Or you see the people in church. I remember so I remember so so, so clearly thinking, it don't take all that. Like somebody was singing a song, the sermon hasn't even started yet, and they shouting. I was like, you don't need to take all of that. Until you went through something, and, and you could just be minding your own business in church. And all of a sudden, you remember, I can't believe God brought me through that. And now you're overcome with emotion. You don't got to be preached into it or prayed into it. You just got to be in the presence of the people of God. And so what I'm saying about doctrines... Doctors are important. I think that like there's a thing called orthodoxy that, that, yes. that actually set the boundaries that allow our spirituality to flourish. Mm-hmm. But until we're tested, right? It's one we thing to believe in the authority of scripture until scripture tells you something you don't want to do. Yes. Right? And then you believe then you find out. Because I'm telling you, there's always gonna be a reason to, to choose disobedience or doubt because the church is always going to be a mess. I'm not downplaying it. I'm I'm just telling you what it is. Our doubts when matched up with the church's hypocrisy is always going to be a lane that allows us to to, to head away from the faith. Mm -hmm. And until we come to that place where that, the avenue of departure opens for us and we ask ourselves, do I really believe this stuff? Then we find out who we are. Yeah, that's true. We, we find out, do we actually believe in forgiveness? Do we actually believe yes. in grace? Do we actually believe in mercy? Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I had to be confronted with my own beliefs. I had somebody years ago that hurt me deeply. And uh, recently, it was like a year ago, I said something smart to them, but I felt justified because I yeah. was like, that smart comment was yeah. no match for the... If if my smart comment was at a five, yeah. what they did was at a thousand. Yeah. And I heard God in my devotional time so clearly apologize. And uh-huh. I had to wrestle with God. Like <laughs> I ain't apologizing. I'm 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 you you might have to tell me off air. Because it's folks who says mean stuff to you that I don't even mess with. It's folks <laughs> I need a list, because I have a list. If you beef with one of my friends, I'm beefing with you. But if you'd have forgiven somebody <laughs> I'm not, it's not I'm anybody not, you it's not I'm, anybody in the in the world you would okay, know. I'm but, say, I'm but, not, um, you I'm not coming on any of your shows, I'm not doing any of your podcasts, I'm not doing nothing. I'm gonna say it. We gotta you gotta be gracious. Esau, we just talked about that. I'm but, sorry. That's what I'm talking about. I was just super spiritual and then the flesh came out and said, I'm super sad that you mess with one of my friends. I'll repent. I will come yeah. on I'll come on your stuff, but then I'm gonna talk reckless to you. No, see, I, I, but <laughs> I'm gonna be but, all the same. But I had I had to really apologize, and that took a lot of that took a lot out of me. But it was like, it is the my therapist said to, this to me when I was telling her this story. She said that is what it means when Joseph was kind when it talks about Joseph being kind to his brothers. Yeah. Yeah. And I was thinking about that. She was like, now you understand kindness 
Yeah. Not just to people. She was like, you could be a kind person, but it's a different kind of kindness yeah. to be kind to the people that have hurt you deeply. Yeah. And so I think, you know, that's when the word, that's when it becomes transformation. You know yeah. what I'm saying? So one of the Go things ahead. that's really interesting is that if you read a lot of my writing, I mean, someone, you don't have to, I'll just tell you, I don't actually talk a lot about like, um, like justification by faith or salvation by grace as doctrine. So most of my stuff, my writing has to be on the doctrine of grace. But how far to the promised land doesn't quote hardly any past any Bible, but it's an extended reflection on the doctrine of grace. That's what it is. Can we have grace towards the people who genuinely hurt us? Can we find beauty? In the midst of brokenness. And yes, you can say, I believe that I am saved by grace and that everybody is saved by grace who, you know, come to faith or whatever. Mm -hmm. But what does that actually mean in life? Because some people who have real doctrine can be real mean. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that, and this is, this might be a danger to, to our doctrine brothers and sisters. And I'm like, I'm on that team. So I'm talking from within that side. You can get so frustrated by people who don't hold to your doctrines that that you lose the fruit of the spirit, which is part of the doctrines that you hold dear. Patience, mm -hmm. kindness, goodness, self-control. And yeah, and, and sorry, this this is my last little rant, because I'm gonna be I'm gonna do a Paul stuff. Everybody think that they Apostle Paul in Galatia. They feel like that's the only <laughs> paradigm. Like I'm confronting false teachers. Paul didn't do that every single book. So the question is, if you are in Galatia all the time, have you never been to Philippi where he loves everybody there? Have you never read like, the, you know, like in, in the part in Corinth where the fruit of the spirit is there? In other words, Paul is often, no matter how whack the church is. For example, Galatia is probably the most messed up church that Paul has. As far well, maybe he's fighting with Corinth, right? But Galatians really messed up and he comes for them. But in that same letter, it's actually where he articulates the fruit of the spirit. So his most beautiful depiction of life together, patience, kindness, goodness, self-control is in his letter where he speaks most plainly to them. In other words, Paul's ministry is never simply one of condemnation that doesn't at the same time present the picture of life with God on the other side. Paul is always saying to his people, it don't got to be this way. There's more that is available to you. And I really wish that what we could do is to find a way not to simply battle wrong teaching, but to paint a picture of the beautiful possibilities of life with God. And if we have to ask ourselves, as I go through my life and my ministry, how much is, and maybe, maybe everybody's, maybe everybody called to be Jeremiah and Paul in Galatia. Maybe that's everybody's call. Even Jeremiah got three or four chapters where he kind of presents the picture of, of the beautiful restoration of the people of God. So it's not that I'm against speaking plainly. I'm against thinking that we are always Paul and that we're never Galatia. That we're never the ones who are the object of God's critique and that, that our posture might need to be humility and patience every now and then. Because I know that's a danger for me, at least, to, 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 to put myself over against the world as its theological judge and ju jury, not a fellow recipient of grace. Mm -hmm. No, that's good. I have one more question for you before okay. we go. This has probably been our best interview yet, Esau, I think. 
Uh, I told you, like, if, if we should, if we should this, this, this is basically our phone call. This is testimony time. Uh, um, last question. You talk a lot in the book, and we did a, when your book, the week of your book came out, we did a Instagram live. Yeah. Uh, and we talked about the complexity of Christian leaders. We yeah. talked about your grandfather. Yeah. For those who are listening, they didn't get to hear that Instagram conversation. I think that's really good because there's a lot of heroes of the faith for people that have not. Yeah. Uh, they have have um, disappointed them. And yeah. I've had to navigate that in my own oh, life. Um, but I'm, I'm reading through Chronicles right now. And I in um, I was on the Jehoshaphat. And Asa. And I was just like, man, can't nobody end well? Like, yeah. they always got this, like, little I part. It <laughs> did something. And because what happens when a, when a, somebody great falls, we think, well, they were fouled from the, the, the whole yeah. time. Yeah. And what we see in Asa and Jehoshaphat, like, they were pleasing the Lord. And then at a certain point, they just... Jehoshaphat kept making alliances. He like made an alliance with Ahab. And then I can't remember at the end, he made an alliance with someone else. And it was just like, man, bro, like God has been faithful. Why do you make this alliance at the end that, that makes this like little footnote in your whole life. And so what that was really helpful for me reframing because this, this philosophy we have, well, if they fell at the end, they were fouled throughout. Yeah. And the Bible is showing us, no, they had high moments, uh, low moments. Only Jesus is the hero. And so yeah. the Bible is giving us that only Jesus is the hero. Yeah. So you having to navigate that with your grandfather, just share a little bit about that. Yeah, I'll, I'll try I'll try to tell his whole story, but he's kind of, he's like, each different chapters focus on different people from in my family. He has his own, yeah. his own chapter. And one of the things that... Um, I sat down and talked with him about what's his call to ministry. And he talks about when he was, when he was a, growing up as a pastor, you know, they called the pastors chicken eaters because they would preach. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the sermon, they would get some fried chicken to eat. And so people assumed that they were doing it for money. And so his goal in life was to kind of be seen as this ethical pastor who did things the right way. And so I talk about how he begins by, you know, preaching, he traveling around segregated Alabama, doing all of this stuff. But what happens is um, my the woman who he married, my grandmother, um, struggled with, with, with gambling addiction. And so by the time I'm born and I'm co- I come of age, there is effectively um, a gambling ring being run out of my father, my grandfather's house. And so if you don't know how numbers work, I mean, if y'all not from the South, I don't know if y'all do it, but my, 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 my grandmother was running numbers out of, out of the house where they would come in and you would gamble. And then on Friday and Saturday nights, they would come and effectively have a speakeasy downstairs where um, upstairs they'd be frying plates of fried chicken and, and, and catfish. And you would bring it down and they would give you, they would give you money for the food. And then they would, they would do poker and tonk and spades for money downstairs. And as one of the kids in the family, I would serve the food. Sometimes I would stand beside them. If they won a hand, they'd give me like a 20 and I would come up that night. I thought it was a good night. But while that was happening downstairs, my grandfather was upstairs writing the sermon. And so in the same house, and I would see the people from the church who would come to the house, gamble, and then I see them at church on Sunday. And so as a kid, I'm like, well, hold on. It's supposed to be like the how, the man of God's house, but y'all gambling and doing all of this stuff, drinking, smoking, cussing, lying, cheating, all this other stuff. 
And then I'm hearing this sermon and seeing these same people in church. And so a lot of people in my family talk about like um, like religious trauma or whatever you want to call it. A lot of people in my family kind of struggle. The children from my generation struggled with Christian faith because they saw the hypocrisy. Right. And so for a long time, I judged my, my grandfather because I thought, well, you should have done something about that. And even when I initially started to, to go into ministry for my um, for myself, nobody in my family took it seriously like the other kids of my age. They just assumed it was a hustle. Right. And so I had like I when people talk about like the entire and I'm not dismissing it, the entire kind of moment where people are face to face with the hypocrisy of the church and that's mm-hmm. causing a spiritual crisis. That was my actual childhood. Gambling and preaching in the same house, right? And so when I decided I was going to try to do ministry, my first thing was it can't be fake, right? This is the reason why I didn't like for a variety of reasons. I was afraid of money because I felt like if I ever, if I ever made any money, then people would think that I was doing this just for for pay. And so all that to say is I, I it, it was I was a grown man, so I didn't talk to my grandfather about this until about five to six years ago. And I finally sat him down and I said to him, like, you know, granddad, I love you, right? I respect you. My grandmother's passed. I said, how could you be a preacher and have one of the biggest gambling rings in the city, in your house? And he said to me, he said, um, he said, son, he said, grandson, he said, junior, whatever. He said, Truth be told, I kind of blame myself because I was gone all of the time traveling around preaching. And it was me who introduced her to bingo. And so she had never gambled before. And I introduced her to bingo. And for some people, you can just play bingo and that's it. But other people, you got you get hooked. And I, he said, I told her to stop. But he said, what do you want me to do? Did you want me to leave your grandmother? And even if you disagree with like his decision to about what happened in his house, it reframed the decision. In other words, he took the 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 the, the scorn of the people around him because of the person that he loved. And so sometimes I'm doesn't it doesn't excuse the mistakes the leaders make, but sometimes people are more complicated than we give them credit for. So the question that I wrestle with is, is my grandfather, was he actually the religious hypocrite that I made him out to be? Or was he complicated? Now, some people are just religious hypocrites. But sometimes, like, the moral decisions that it's easy for us to judge from afar are more complicated in a vacuum. But the point of that, though, is that I think that despite the brokenness of people, Sometimes the stuff that they said about God stick with us. And my grandfather, despite his flaws, and this isn't every, some people ministry, their, their stuff is so foul that, you know, you push the ministry to the side. But for my grandfather, it was like he was complicated and he was making the best decisions that he can. And that's what I mean when he talk, talking about grace towards people. But it's also like the Bible says, the people, those of us who are teachers are going to have to bear the stricter judgment. And we have to recognize that the life that we live in front of people, this is like something that, that, that really sticks with me. The life that, and, and I know you can't be perfect if you're a minister, 
or if you do public, everybody's going to make mistakes. Like, I'm not judging you. But if you stand up in front of people and say this, that, or the other about Jesus, then the life that we live before God actually matters. And what I say to people all the time, I put it on, on, on wax or whatever, and I just hope it's true. My goal is to just die. And I don't want to die now. But when I die, I just want to be gone. I don't want me to die. And then two weeks later, it's all of this stuff that I did that no one talked about. No, 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 no. I just want to, if I can just die. And like, so like Tim Keller, God bless him, right? Tim Keller died. He was just gone. right? And like, I'm not saying Tim Keller was perfect, but he finished the race. As far as we know, like, you know, when, when, you know, when he goes, it's just gone. And I think there's not there's not that many leaders who who I looked up to when I was in my 20s and 30s. Now that I'm 40 something who kind of finished the race strong. And so my goal, like you said, is to kind of finish the race strong and live with with not perfection. But at least people can say that we try to honor God, even if we sometimes mm-hmm. made a mess of it. Yeah, no, that's good. And I think, you know, that brings me back to um, at our at the church I attend, our pastor is on a series, The Fear of God. And he made a statement. He said, the fear of God leads to integrity. The fear of man leads to hypocrisy. And I think when we don't fear God rightly, we live a hypocritical life over time. (laughs) <laughs> over over time because we fear what people's perception and we can't live transparently and vulnerable. And the, the way in which we talk about all of this comes together because when we were talking about earlier dealing with your traumas, yes. what happens sometimes is we try to, I have this line in my upcoming book, it's easier to tackle a task than to tackle trauma. Yeah, And so we'll, we'll read We'll we'll read about God, get to know about God, have this intellectual understanding without doing the deep work. And that's how we become hypocrites, because we are able to communicate truths about God that we haven't actually allowed to take root in our hearts. And that creates a duplicity. Let me tell you, we we need to get off the podcast, but I want to tell you this part. (laughs) People might wonder why I don't argue with folks on the Internet anymore. Like you, you will see you can say what you want to me. God bless you. I'm not going to respond to you. And let me explain to you why. And this, this relates exactly to what you just said. When um, my wife was de- my wife was deployed in the middle of the pandemic about two or three years ago. And I had my at the time I had my four kids by myself. She had been gone. She'd be gone for like eight months, about five or six months into the deployment. And I was sad because my wife was gone. And I had mm-hmm. the kids who were around and it was dark. It was a pandemic and it was horrible. And I got on the Internet. And somebody said something that wasn't true about theology or something about me. And I'm arguing with this person. And I remember having this clear thought. Are you mad about this doctrine or do you miss your wife? (laughs) And I said, well, this person is wrong, but it's actually all the stuff that's going on in my life. And I said, you're using this Internet, B, to process your anger. And then I said, well, what if, and I don't know. Whoever it was that I was beefing with was also going through something in their life. And we're both arguing, but it's actually unprocessed trauma going on behind all of that. Mm-hmm. And I said, you know what? I don't know any of these people. I don't know any of these people. And I don't know what they're going through. 
So this argument that I'm having with them that I think is intellectual could do real emotional damage. Folks say stuff to me on the internet that ruined my whole day when I was already going through something. And I was like, if you knew what I was going through, you wouldn't have said that to me even if I was wrong. <laughs> yes. And so I said, you know what I'm not going to do? It doesn't mean that I don't, like, I don't actually post much of you, but not that I don't say stuff. But I am going, I just say that because I don't know what's happening in your life, I can't, under, I don't know if I'm talking to you or to your trauma. And so I just said, you know what, as a personal rule, I will say stuff, but I don't go back and forth because I don't know, I don't know what the real source of the pain or the trauma is. And so I do think that we have to really be careful when we're bringing logic weapons to emotional fights. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's, that's it. So we're talking about it. Yes. So get Esau's book. We've already been on this podcast. We could we could go on and on for hours. Um, How Far to the Promised Land is available wherever books are sold. Follow yeah. Esau on social at Esau McCauley everywhere. Yes. Uh, it's one thing having a weird name. Nobody else going to take it. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for watching another episode of the G3 Project podcast. As always, you can catch all of our past episodes on our website at g3project.org or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast or the G3 Project uh, YouTube channel. Um, I have merch here, Listen, Limit, Legislate. And we released the shirt some time ago, uh, but now we have hoodies and uh, sweaters for the winner. So get you get you one. Uh, all of that is on our website. Um, you can donate to G3 Project uh, at g3project.org. Every gift helps equip. And we're listening. You know, Esau is a friend. He's a donor. He's he's yeah. all the things. I own, uh, I own the t-shirt version. I'm about to say, do y'all ship internationally? Can I yes, call them and mail it? Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Next time I come uh, on, I have a, a <laughs> So we thank you, Esau. And if you want to join Esau in uh, helping us do, fulfill the mission of G3 Project, do that at g3project.org backslash donate. Remember here the G3 Project, we're helping you know what you believe and why you believe it. Grace and peace and God bless. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the G3 Project podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. You can tune into all our past episodes at www.g3project.org You can subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play. Remember not only to subscribe, but also rate us. That helps us to gauge how we're doing and how you're enjoying the show. And it gives other listeners some ideas about the show as well. So thank you so much for tuning in. Also, remember, we have our Bible engagement app in partnership with Back to the Bible to help you get better engaged in the Bible every single day. You take a survey, it assesses your strengths and weaknesses and sends you Bible verses based on those. So it's a great app. You can download the app by searching in your app store or Google Play, searching G3 Project, and it'll be right there for you. So thank you again. Remember, if you would like to become a monthly partner or a one-time giver, you can do so on our website or by mail. Just go to g3project.com, hit that donate tab, and you'll see the option to mail in a gift or give online. We appreciate you, and I'm so, so thankful for you. God bless, and remember, here at the Jupe 3 Project, we're helping you to know what you believe and why you believe it.